Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley from the Thread Bible Podcast. Okay, so question. What seems to you to be the weirdest story in the Bible? How about sky beings mating with human women producing giants as offspring? Yep, it's right there in Genesis 6-1, and we're going there today, so stay tuned. Welcome to Thread, God's Word tying together all the pieces of your life through verse-by-verse study of the Bible. In Season 4, we're exploring the bedrock of the entire Bible, Genesis 1-12. through Season 4 of the Thread Bible Podcast is brought to you by MediaLightOnline.com. And don't miss our new weekly video podcast. It's on Facebook every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with replays on IGTV and YouTube by searching Medialite Network or by clicking the link in the show notes. Okay, so we're finally here. Genesis 6, the story of the origins of the hybrid race of supernatural men who were a scourge on the earth in ancient times. And I want to go ahead and warn you, there will be some mind benders in today's episode, but that's what brains are for. So use yours and ponder the lessons being taught. Well, let's have a little introduction. I think it's time, a good time again for another reminder about the world of Bible writers versus the world of today. We are all about technology, and our minds are programmed by society to be rationalist, whether we are Christians, atheists, or just run-of-the-mill modern pagans. Well, Bible people process life in supernatural terms. They saw the world differently than our culture teaches us to see it today. And if we're going to understand the Bible... We have to adapt the supernatural worldview of the Bible and see the world through their eyes. And this is going to require taking off our cultural filters because they're going to get in the way of even hearing and perceiving the message of the text when we approach the Bible. To quote Michael Heiser, author of The Unseen Realm, which I highly recommend, or you can get the easier-to-read one called Supernatural, and that's H-E-I-S-E-R, here's the quote, Modern Christianity's view of the unseen world isn't framed by the ancient worldview of the biblical writers. The believing church is bending under the weight of its own rationalism, a modern worldview that would be so foreign to the Bible writers. So, let's approach this text today, strange as it is, but let's Go ahead and make the rule. We're going to set aside science questions like how do angelic beings make babies and are giants real or make-believe? Why didn't the flood kill them? And let's listen to the meaning of the stories that we're about to encounter. Another note we need to make again is about history. Though there is history there, the details of Bible history are thin and the history generally just forms the context for the story because the story is what it's all about. And these stories, they're not, they are grounded in history, but they're not a historically um, crafted story. These stories are theological. They are, they're God, they're words about God. They are theological tellings and they are aimed 
at revealing the truth about the world, the truth about the world we're in, the truth about who we are as humans, the truth about this invisible and sometimes visible force of opposition and chaos that has always been surrounding humans. I mean, we're Earth's highest creature, but there's always been this force of opposition and chaos trying to lead us to destroy ourselves. While the rest of the animals happily play, mate, and hunt, without any of the anxiety, fear, and even hatred experienced by humans who are supposed to be so far above them. Another thing I want to remind you again is that though the stories in Genesis are old and the events that are described happened in the farthest, most ancient times, and although there were versions of these stories even from the days of Moses, that were written down, the final form of the first five books of the Bible really does seem to have come together in Babylon. While Israel was in exile and its nationhood was dissolved by the superpowers of Assyria and Babylon. So Genesis is a telling of ancient stories, but it's crafted to create a moral compass and a magnetic north to build the faith of the children of Abraham as they endured slavery as exiles in Babylon, with the hope that one day they might be allowed to return to their native land. And you will see hints of this throughout the book because of its uh, frequent, frequent references to Babylon and its rivers and its gods. And uh, never more uh, than in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is what's called a polemic. A polemic is a story war. It's when you attack the narrative of another culture. In this case, chapter 6 is an attack on the narrative of Babylon. Babylon had a national narrative, as all countries do, and theirs went like this. Babylon is the greatest nation in the world. The founders of Babylon are the descendants, literal descendants, of the gods themselves, These gods revealed secret knowledge to our forefathers, and we have used this secret knowledge, and that's why we win. Uh, Our kings are the descendants of the gods who survived a global flood on a boat that saved them and the animals. We have the approval of our gods, and because our gods are superior to all the other nations' gods, we've beaten all the other nations. And we've brought their idols and sacred temple objects like scalps or heads, and we display them now as war trophies in the shrines of our God to show the triumph of our God. So, in conclusion, all you nations must bow before the nation of Babylon, and you must bow before our gods and serve as our slaves. Just accept your fate. You cannot fight the gods. And we know this was their their narrative because we still have two books from ancient Babylon. One is called the Enuma Elish, and that's their creation myth. And there's another one called the Gilgamesh Epic, and that is their story of, let's see if it sounds similar, 
Their story of gods breeding with human women, creating giants, and many cultures have this story, by the way, and that in uh, of these giants, there are the wise ones, and they tap the secret knowledge of the gods. And in this story, there's a creation of demons, and there's a flood, and there's a boat that saves humans and animals, and then the high god Marduk punishes these evil one-third human, two-thirds divine beings, and banishes them to the deep waters inside the earth. Okay, are you still with me? The point is that Genesis isn't written in a vacuum. Uh, It's not the history of the world. It's not once upon a time. It's a story war, and they are battling the narrative of the ancient pagan cultures that are surrounding God's people in exile. And that narrative existed to crush them and break them down. And the prophets and scribes wrote as a chance to set things in their proper context and fight back. Because, you know, you can acknowledge an event, but if the context is not what people think it is, it changes the meaning of the event, you know, completely. If mm, one day your mother walks out on you and you never see her again, You think she's a horrible person and she rejected you. But if you later found out that she was a witness to a crime committed by a cartel-backed world leader and they were going to kill her and her whole family, then suddenly you would see her actions, exactly the same actions. But you'd see them in an entirely different light. Though it breaks her heart to be away from you, she loves you. And she's protecting you by cutting off all contact with you. Context is the key to truth, and the prophets wrote to establish the proper context for the world's stories. And um, here's something I find really interesting. When the prophets and, and the writers would address the stories of the pagan world and the stories being told by the pagan world, they would claim the parts of the story that they knew to be true. I think that's really amazing. Um, They weren't afraid of truth. Some people, you know, approach every other religion and just all of it's wrong, all of it's lie, none of it's true. Uh, But, you know, there's a whole concept in in missions uh, about the bridges of God, which means all people in all religions have, have truth, and they have these bridges of truth that connect them to the other cultures, because we're all connected, you know. And if you trace us all the way back, we go all the way back to one family in the garden. And so um, we want to use these bridges to actually have conversations and not to just fight and reject all the other people of the world and all the other religions of the world. Well, Jeremiah and Ezekiel spoke to the people of Israel in exile, and they told them uh, another narrative. They said, your situation is temporary. Yahweh is still your God. Regardless of what Babylon says, he was not defeated by the gods of Babylon. He has been disciplining you because of our national behavior. We're disloyal to him. And he has been doing his will in Babylon that Yahweh is actually revealing himself through you to the people of Babylon. And the children of Israel will stand before the kings of Babylon and will testify 
about Yahweh to them, and this circumstance will give them the opportunity. So when God's work is accomplished, he will release Israel from their exile and return them to their homeland, and then he will surely judge Babylon for any abuses that they've done to God's people. The prophets told them Yahweh wasn't in the same category as the lesser gods of the nations, but at the same time, they didn't deny the existence of those beings. It's a big point. In fact, they said that Yahweh himself had created a whole society of divine beings as his heavenly family, and he had given them the gift of free will. And some of them had used it to choose rebellion against him. And these are the gods of the nations. But they have no power to truly overthrow Yahweh as king. Babylon was a a fertile time. In Babylon, God raised up new voices, new messengers, and they used a new technology, writing. And the whole Old Testament arose as a result. So this new generation is being raised in Babylon for the first time, and they have access to writings, and they have small group meetings called the synagogue to learn and discuss these ideas. Babylonian exile was an explosive time for God's word. So much of God's word came forth and and ended up in writing for us to have even to this day. It was a great time of revival. It was a hard time, but it was a time that they were able to share the story of Yahweh and his relationship with this world and with its human and spiritual inhabitants. And we need all that context uh, because of the story we're going to read today. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And it happened. As man first multiplied over the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of man, that they were good, and they took for them, for their wives, whoever they chose. But the Lord said, My spirit shall not remain strong in man forever, inasmuch as he is also flesh. Let his days be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days as well as later, as the sons of God used to go into the daughters of man who would bear sons to them. Those were the mighty men of old, the men of name. We'll be right back. We're going to find as we dig down now that Genesis 6, this crazy story, is far from peripheral. It's not just a mad insertion, which honestly is what I thought more or less, my first encounters with it, uh, before I spent the necessary time to really study this book. The events of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, are the record of the second of three great transgressions in the Old Testament in the conflict between divine rebels and humanity. Now, we've already looked at the first of these transgressions, and that was the story of the serpent, the Nakash, 
who entices the first humans to join in rebelling against the Creator. And he does this at the tree Yahweh himself had planted in his own garden. And so in this daring moment, the Nakash, a supernatural, clearly supernatural creature, shows up there to speak against the character of God, to speak against the honesty of God, to try and cause humans to use their free will and join his own rebellion against the Creator God. That was the first of the great transgressions. And we know at the end of that story, God did not uh, curse the humans. He told them the ground is now cursed because of you. But he did curse the serpent. He cursed the Nakash because this is the beginning of the great battle between the spirit world creatures and God, but it's a triangle because they they want to involve and they want to break down God's highest creation on this planet, the human race. We are co-regents with the Father. We have been placed in charge of this material world because we are primarily, in the Old Testament thinking, you are not a spirit in a body. You are a human, which is part of earth and ground and the material world. You have a spiritual essence to you. We have the breath of God in us. We are made in the image of God. We're made to be his imagers. But human life and even the word life, it means physical life. It's related to movement. So humans are seen in the Old Testament especially uh, as physical creatures, and we live a physical life on a physical planet. We are in charge of this planet, and there's even a limit to be able to look at this world and say, this is not my world. It is your world. It is, it is the world. It is the only world you will ever live in because we're not made to go live up in the clouds in the heavens. Just read the story from beginning to end. We end on this planet, recreated back the garden the way it should have been, the rebellion put down, and God and man and the heavenly loyal family united as one group, heaven and earth coming together. But God living on earth with his people, that's the end of the story. And so what we're, what we're running into here is the second out of three. There's going to be three, and we're going to see them all. Um, in these early uh, stories that are coming about, because after the Tower of Babel, something else is going to happen. But this is the second great transgression. This is a story. I mean, let it sink in. This is the story of a perverse incarnation. Because you can say, oh, it's impossible for spirit beings to impregnate uh, human women and make them have a child. Well, that's exactly what we say happened in the creation of Jesus, the perfect man, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This is an assault on the plan for God to bring the snake crusher to put down the divine rebellion on earth. And it is, uh, it's interesting that this story is in so many different cultures. Now, this story is not just here in Genesis 6. It is a foundational story, and it is... It is part of the story of Israel. It's part of the story of the church. It's part of the story of mankind as a whole. It's not just here. It is the book of Jude. 
and it is 2 Peter chapter 2, where this story is taken up. Jude is a book addressing false teachers, and Jude takes for his source material this whole story of Genesis 6 and what we just read, and he's going to take that thing apart and find characteristics of evil teachers. So, and as I said, Second Peter chapter 2, he's going to go back to the same material again. So let's, uh, let's go slowly through the text here, and let's just see what all is in it. Uh, back to chapter 6, verse 1. And it happened as man, and that word is Adam, and it happened as Adam first multiplied on the face of the Adama, the ground, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of Elohim saw the daughters of man. The sons of Elohim saw the daughters of man. And you, you might stumble over the sons of Elohim. And there's, you know, this is one of the things that I, I really believe you don't need to protect people from their Bible. And sometimes translators will try to do that. They're afraid of a verse, and they will, as they translate, they go ahead and fast forward, you know, a couple thousand years in theology, and they'll find a word they might could use to translate these old concepts, and they'll insert those words so that it'll be correct later when you get to that, you know, that part of the story. And they're, they're trying to help us, but we don't need to be protected from the Bible. We need to let our Bible tell us the story of this world and how things came to be the way they are. It is very clear that Yahweh is not the only supernatural entity. It is very clear that there are both fallen and loyal supernatural beings made by Him. It is clear that they have free will. Uh, it is clear in this case that this is a story. And some want to try to translate their way around the weirdness of this so they can make it that there's just these humans and these humans are raping these women and making babies and they're just like, you know, big powerful people. The way we're all sons of God. And it's like, well, no, this is the story because of that word. There's that word Elohim that we've brought up more than once. It's the only, it's the main category word. Uh, it doesn't mean your rank. It just means you are a being who is not limited to a body. It is the word for the great Elohim, creator of everything. It is the word for the angels. It is the word even for the departed but conscious spirit of a human. Uh, it is even the word for things that are like demonic. It just means a non-physical creature, um, and well, not creature, because Yahweh is not a creature. Everybody else is creatures. But the point is, these are beings that do not require a body, and the scripture is, is not shy about this. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't say these things don't exist. It says they do exist. And in this case, you have a second rebellious action on behalf of, uh, of this, this group of supernatural beings. And we're going to notice something that we've already seen happen with Eve. 
the sons of Elohim saw the daughters of man, that they were good, and they took. They saw it was good, and they took. When was the last time we saw that? Eve. Eve saw that the fruit was pleasant to the eyes, you know, and she took for herself. So we already know because they're echoing, you know, this is an echo of Genesis 3. We know this is not going to end well. Because that's that pattern. You're going to see David do it. You're going to see others in Scripture do it. You you see it. You desire it. You find it good. And you take. Uh, So they took for their wives whomever they chose. So this is just overpowering of human women. And then I think we can skip the next verse because we're going to come back to it. It's a, a little bit of a break in the flow of thought that I'm on. There were Nephilim on the earth in those days as well as later. And I'm in verse 4. Nephilim. This word is only in the Bible twice. And it's here and it's again in the stories of the promised land and the invasion of Canaan in Numbers 13.33. You remember when the, um, the spies came back from looking at the land and they came back and said, yeah, the land's awesome, but the Nephilim live there, and they're talking about these fallen ones, clearly supernatural humans is a blending, and they're, they're scaring them. And so they don't want to have to face these people. They're not just big humans. They are this hybrid race, this assault on the very... Mm, physical creation of the earth. Like the first assault was to try to get humans to use their free will against Yahweh. This one is to go back. You know, when when you see the creation narrative in the overture, especially chapter one, and God is pointing to all the different animals that he makes. And then, in, uh, you know, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything needs to multiply according to its kind. You know, very, very careful about setting categories. Animals mate with animals. Humans mate with humans. You don't cross things over. Everything must mate with its kind. And I want fertility and I want fruitfulness. I want abundance, but with your own kind. And this is there to set up this story because this story is not an odd thing that gets inserted. It's the beginning of an underlying narrative. You know, the, um, because in, Paul, in Paul's writings, he is, in, in, a, in some places, he is making the case for what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and he calls Jesus the second Adam. And so uh, he brings up the failure of Adam and Eve and what they did to the world, and then how Jesus makes it right. Absolute. However, in Jewish thought, And actually, you know, scan the Old Testament and tell me how many times you see a reference to Adam and Eve and how many times Jesus refers to Adam and Eve. And you're not going to find a lot of coverage, whereas, you know, we can take those few verses from Paul and make the whole story of the planet about Adam and Eve's failure. Uh, Second Temple Judaism did not assign the same level of blame to Adam and Eve. Yes, they failed, 
but they were in the hands of the supernatural ones. They were children in their understanding. And these are, are supernatural beings, and that's the ones they blame. You know, if you're going to blame somebody uh, in... If you're going to give somebody credit for what is wrong with this world and how messed up it is, there's a lot more slant in the Bible aiming this at supernatural beings than at Eve for her rebellion and Adam for joining her. Uh, This is not a hard uh, track to find and to follow. And so Jesus comes to earth and he's not, you know, he's not pounding over and over again on the Adam and Eve took the fruit, Adam and Eve took the fruit. He, He doesn't bring it up. What he wants to talk about is, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's going to cast out demons. He's going to, that's how you know the kingdom of God is here. He is at war with the spirit world. And so, yes, humans have gotten caught up in this. And yes, humans have to rise up because only only humans can take this back. It takes a human to fight and win this victory. But this is a battle that is supernatural in its nature, and it is a war against God. And so, yes, humans are fighting against God because humans have become the puppets of the spirit world. And so this is a story, you know, as as strange as this story is, this is a story about a second movement in the rebellion uh, against God from the spirit world. And it's an important story. So these were, and so let's uh, continue in verse 4, talking about the giant Nephilim in those days, the fallen ones, the half-spirit, half-flesh people. There were giants in those days. And uh, the word in, uh, that uh, Tyndale used in, in his translation, hmm, I hope I got that right, uh, it's a Latin word, tyrantes. It's where tyrants come from. It's someone that uses violence to dominate other people. Um, there were Nephilim on the earth in those days as well as later, before the flood. There were Nephilim. After the flood, there were Nephilim as the spirit world tries to mess up the genetic pool of the earth. And so when uh, in, the, you know, in, the, uh, in the account of going into Canaan and taking over, there are sections of Canaan, especially where giant people live, where people like the Nephilim live. And that those areas are put under the ban. And that means nothing scorched earth, nothing survives. When you attack those people, nothing survives. That's not the rule for everybody. That wasn't the rule for everywhere. But those people had to be wiped out. That seems to be the narrative that Joshua is going on. But it's because it ties back to this story. These people this event, it brings a darkness, it brings a dark evil, and they must be eradicated. So it puts that, that concept of putting the mountain giant people under the ban, 
at least it sheds another light. Today, you know, it still seems like a brutal, uh, a brutal attack, but God is about to wipe out the entire human race. And part of the cause is to get rid of these beings because they are, they are filling the earth with violence. And they have brought things to earth that should never have been here. It's like you've trained children how to make poisons. Why would you ever teach a child something like that? Oh, it's knowledge, not for children. And so this is a, it's an assault on the earth and on the people that God has made. They were the violent ones, the tyrants, men of name. You know, and, and that has always been really important to human societies. And you know, Nimrod is the father of the Babylonians. Nimrod is the father who establishes Babylon, the city. And Nimrod is, is called one of these tyrants. He is a violent man. And what is it that they build the, the, uh, the ziggurat? You know, what are they building in Babylon? They want to establish a name for themselves. And it's beautiful later in, in Abraham's story, Genesis 12, 2, where God turns to Abraham and says, I'll give you a name. You know, you don't have to fight and take a name. I will give you a name. I want you to have a name. Um, so now let's go back to verse 3, which I skipped and I told you I was coming back to it. Stay tuned. And Yahweh said, my Ruach, that's the word for spirit. It means wind, breath, and spirit. And it means all of them at the same time. My Ruach shall not remain strong in man forever, inasmuch he is also flesh. Let his, na- let his days be 120 years. And this goes back to that very beginning of the Genesis story where you can't just have life. Yahweh has to push back tohu vabohu and entropy, those forces that, you know, they're, entropy is a law. Uh, and it, it just says nothing will stay good if you get anything. You know, I'm looking at a camera on my desk. If you just set the camera out, give it time, the camera will fall apart. It is the tendency of all things to corrupt, to grind down. And it takes Yahweh actively forcing life into things. So here's the human race, which has moved away from him, and he is pushing death away from them. He is keeping his ruach, his spirit, in them to extend their life. Yes, they must die, but he doesn't want them to die so soon. So he's giving them like a thousand years of life, and they're just using it to create more and more disaster. And in verse 3, Yahweh says, I am not going to continue to exert my spirit for so long. I will not let my Ruach remain so strong 
forever, for he is basar. He is flesh, uh, a piece of meat. He is a physical body. You know, remove the spirit from um, a man or an animal and see what it soon becomes. Give it three days and see what it becomes. Only the force of spirit pushing against corruption can keep us fresh and alive. And so Yahweh starts to pull back. I mean, a lot of people would be happy with 120 years, but he's been extending their days almost to 1,000 years. Now we move to, to why he comes to that conclusion, and it's in verse 5. And Yahweh saw, and that word saw is to perceive, to observe, to discern, and Yahweh discerned in, in his observations, he discerned that the evil of man, remember, it's the tree of experiencing and the tree of participating in tov and ra, good and evil, uh, building up and tearing down. And he looks at humans and he says, Man's, man is just raw, you know? He's not using his gifts to bring even Tov and Ra. He's just bringing Ra. The evil of, and the word is Adam, Yahweh saw, discerned, that the evil, the, the Ra, of Adam was great on the earth. And, and this next phrase is from pottery. Every imagining of the thoughts of his heart, every imagining. That word imagining is a pottery term. It means um, shaping. You know how a potter has to use energy and raise up a vessel. And so as Adam is using his energy, he is raising up in his thinking because that's the power. And that's why God spoke to Cain about intention because there is a power and God's a creator and he put creativity in us. And when we think on a thing and we pour energy on it, we rise, you know, we raise it up and it rises within us and it becomes. And he said, yeah, but look at them, the raw of man, the malignancy, the, the badness of man was great there every forming into shape of the intellectual framework, the thoughts, the inner mind, the will, the heart, the thinking, you know, the energy that goes into that, look at verse 5, was only, and that word only means completely, exclusively, was only raw, only destruction, only malignancy, only raw, all the time, literally morning and evening, all the time, it's only on raw, his reflections, his memory, his mind, he only uses it to destroy. And Yahweh, verse 6, was aggrieved that he had made man on the earth. So in his heart, he sorrowed. I remember when Adam and Eve failed, the Lord turned to Adam and he said, you're going to have much sorrow. As you do your work, the earth will not 
only yield fruit. You'll have to really coach it to yield. And with the fruit will come thorns. There'll be pain. And this, this ground that you're taken from will grind you to powder and it will make you dust because you came from dirt. You will return to dirt. So your sorrow is in your work with woman. He says, your sorrow is going to increase in the birthing of your children. And now look what's happened. Yahweh himself is sorrowing. He is feeling sorrow. And that word sorrow means to wrestle, to hurt, to have pain, to be tortured, to feel stressed. It says, the Lord was aggrieved, he regretted, and he sorrowed in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will wipe Adam, whom I created, from off the face of the Adamah. From man to cattle to darting things and flying things of the heavens. Uh, you know, all of these, it doesn't stop with humans being wiped out. It lets you understand that we are, again, primarily conceived of as a part of a physical world. And we are uh, meshed together. Our, our, um, our existence as physical beings is connected to the existence of the animals. Humans don't live on this planet by themselves. They cannot live on this planet by ourselves. We must have the other beings also. We need them at microscopic level, at visible level. We need them all. And so when Yahweh looks and he sees humans as the big problem for the planet, he doesn't just think to wipe out the humans. He, he says it's all going to go at once. You know, it's, it's one system. So, you know, three cheers for Christian ecology. It's ridiculous for Christians to fight about saving the earth. Why in the world would you not want to love the planet you are created out of and all the life forms on this planet? But we are one circle of life, and all life on this planet breathes the same air, breathes together. And Yahweh says, when humans go, everything goes. For I am aggrieved that I fashioned them. I am aggrieved. So I will exterminate, remove from memory, wipe out, blot out, obliterate. Verse 8, but Noah, who we haven't met yet, Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. That word grace means acceptance and approval. Noah found. He didn't earn it. He found it. If you find something, then it was there before you. In some way, someone, some circumstance put something in front of you, and it's the only way you can find it. You don't create it. You don't make it. You don't do anything to cause it. You just discover it. And this is the beginning of a turning in the relationship between God and humans because humans are only using their energies to destroy 
and they are doing it all the time. And as God is bringing down the timeline of earth and this planet is about to be extinguished, his eye, it says, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it's uh, in the eyes, it means the, the physical experience, the experience of eyes resting on someone, like catching someone's eyes or a father looking outside and seeing something. God has been looking at the whole earth. He's inside. He's not just watching the behavior of humans. He is in the minds of humans, and he does not find anything redeeming about humans. And it doesn't say Noah earned God's grace. It isn't what it said. It said Noah found grace. He stumbled over grace. And we'll see. Noah's not a perfect man. Noah has a drinking problem. Uh, Later on, he's got his family not doing all that great. It's grace. There's an entirely new concept, and it starts to grow bigger and bigger as God reveals how big his heart is. There is no way humans are going to save themselves. Even if a human has to rise up and and bring this world back home, God will have to be that human. We learn that ultimately. He, he can't just even send a human. He must become the human because the task is too big and no human succeeds at it. Grace that God brings through his love, acceptance, and approval. And he brings it to us. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's a beautiful beginning of a story You know, Noah gets a big slice of this book. It gets so much more space than so many other really massive events. And it's, it makes me think, um, makes me think about it. Wow, where are you taking us, Lord, with this story about Noah? And where is this going to lead us? And so for the next few episodes, we're just going to be walking through, uh, the revelation of Noah and what God is teaching us about his his determination to make it work and knowing that he's going to have to do all the heavy lifting, that we are going to be saved, but by grace. He is going to bring us grace, and he is going to bring that to us. He's looking for loyalty. If he can just find loyalty... In a human, and in Noah, he finds loyalty. Noah's not morally perfect. He struggles in so many ways, but Noah is loyal to Yahweh. He is loyal to no one else uh, above the Lord. And so it's a really big deal story about grace and justice and covenant and obedience. And it's a beautiful story that we're going to move into. So you can expect God's grace in your life as you battle with me the inner demons of our own heart that lead us to do the evil thing and determine in our heart that we're not going to join the great rebellion. You know, the uh, just to wrap up this story, Israel is turning to Babylon and they are saying to them, this, this connection that you boast about, that your forefathers are connected to the spawn of the devils. This thing that you're so proud of, this secret knowledge that they shared, this toxic 
knowledge that just makes the world more violent and more hate-filled and that you stand on top of, you know, the pile of dead bodies that you have created to make yourself a great nation and it's look at me, look at me. Uh, you should be ashamed of that connection. You shouldn't be proud of your relationship with the demons. You should be ashamed of your connection to the demons because these are cursed demons. And they saw them as like, we're great. Look at us. You know, we're half supernatural. And the Israelites are doing something actually very daring in invading that story saying, yeah, you got some of the facts of the story. You got them right, but you got the context wrong. Because it's not the glorification that you have discovered. It is you are now lower than a human. Because when you mix demon plus human, you don't go up, you go down. And we are made in the image of God. That is all we ever need to be. We serve the true God. And they have a way now to speak into Babylon's story. And as God calls Babylon to repentance that you should bow. You are part of this rebellion and you should join the God who created all things and not serve the gods of stone and the gods who are the lower uh, rebel gods. So a lot more of that to come and it's in our world. If you open your eyes and look around, the spiritual war is everywhere in all nations. But God has called you and he is raising you up and he will use you You can expect that because you are the light of the world.